I'm telling you what I experience, and it's as close to to real as possible. And and we were in an interesting position, so of being above and yeah. looking down on everything. And so I just like to be remembered as part of that moment. Before we get started here today, I just wanted to intro this a little bit. This is the uh, this is part two of my interview with Joshua White. Here we talk about the, of course, the the brilliant um, performances that the Doors gave to Fillmore East. We talk about him going to see the Doors first at Hunter College. We talk a bit about um, how Bill Graham felt betrayed by the Madison Square Garden shows. He he talks about that, and he gives some behind the scenes information that is. Uh, it talks about a personal conversation between Jim and Bill in the end of the last set on that Saturday night that I thought was really interesting. And that's coming right up. And there was so much material and things that I didn't feel like would fit in the context of this podcast, even though they did fit in the context in the context of our overall general discussion, that um, I just want to give you a heads up that instead of going once every other week, for the next five weeks, there's going to be a new podcast dropping every Monday, two of those being bonus shows, one Include note an interview next Monday with George Bunnell of the Strawberry Alarm Clock. I'm super excited about that one. I've already interviewed him. I've just got to edit it and put it out. But he was a, a really fun interview. They got a new album coming out. Go see the go go find the GoFundMe for Strawberry Alarm Clock so we can get that album. They're trying to make a new album for groovy music, and I think that that I mean if you can help out any way you can, that'd be great. And then the bonus episode with Joshua White. All this bonus information that I didn't feel like we could fit in here, but I want to put somewhere for you guys and then we'll have the regular scheduled program and then we'll probably have another off week so expect a, a full month worth of podcasts coming up starting with this one and without further ado let's go ahead and roll the tape hello and welcome back to opening the doors a podcast dedicated to the doors i'm your host bradley netherton and joining us gracing us with his presence yet again your eminence who has a door uh, in camera, if I ever do, because video editing is a whole nother animal when it, besides mm-hmm. audio editing. So if I ever do put this video out, I'm going to save this video and it'll probably collect mm-hmm. dust for a year, but I'll, I'll get it out sometime or pay somebody to do it. I don't know. But Joshua White, your eminence, Joshua White, thank you so much for joining, joining us yet again as we finish up welcome. talking about the doors. And one thing that I noticed and something I don't think we touched on last time. Um, so you actually saw, so we, we talked a little bit about the 68 Fillmore show that you of course, did the phenomenal light show for, but you actually saw the doors before that in '67, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, they were uh, promoted at um, I want to say a co- college, like Hunter College, in an auditorium, mm-hmm. which was very you know uh, vanilla kind of auditoriums like that. But it was before the whole idea of of the light show uh, uh, getting to New York. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, and I remember Tiny Tim opening for them. Yes, he did. He did. Which Tiny Tim, I, I love his music and stuff. Him, strange cat. I think he kept like ten thousand dollars in his left shoe or something. But uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he he's been more appreciated now because he actually, it, it, even though he was a weird guy, he wasn't creepy weird in real life. He was a nice guy. Oh yeah, yeah. With a beautiful voice like Leon Redbone. You know, just a wonderful voice and a great repertoire. He made great choices. But at the time, everybody had to be put into some kind of a box of some sort in order for the 
the media at the time, which was almost all print, to be able to absorb uh, uh, these people. And so Tiny Tim was, you know, was crazy and tiptoed through the tulips. But he he had he knew what he was doing. He was like an old vaudeville performer. He really was. He he was very animated and uh, probably from all the reviews I've seen of the of the show you went to at Hunter College was more animated than Jim. It seems like Jim, this show was very subdued and, and yeah. Yeah. He had, he, by that time, it was the first time I had seen him. And you have to remember that these shows are not in the mainstream and, and a lot of the technical things that we just accept now just weren't there. So the sound was really loud because they had to come up with a way to hear the vocalist over the power amps on the stage. So you were always had to be prepared for an experience that was was going to be okay for someone twenty five, mm-hmm. just uh, but it was going to piss people off and everything. The medium, and this is a moment you mentioned it. The medium, uh, the television, which was very important uh, uh, to be on television, uh, at, but television had its own rules and regulations and style and design. It was basically three channels, all commercially run, uh, and so if a show had the doors on, for example. And I cannot recall, but I'm sure some TV show had them on. There would be a set design filled with doors. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and because they, did, they didn't know. They didn't know. And when I became a television director, I was determined to get away from anything obvious like that, mm-hmm. that, the, that the musicians and their performances could just stand by themselves. But that tradition goes all the way. Elvis was made to appear, you know, uh, singing in, in white tie and tail, singing to a dog. Yes. You know, yeah. To sing nothing but a hound dog. And that that whole that whole way of thinking didn't go away. I mean, it was, this was only 10 years later. Yeah. And I think also the whole Elvis was, was that sort of a tie in with RCA, the Victor RCA, the dog logo with the with the. Uh, no, that what that was, was a, a, a there was a. Uh, a, a, a TV uh, a personality named Steve Allen, mm-hmm. who was uh, a sort of pseudo intellect. He thought of himself as very smart and sophisticated, and and a songwriter, even though no one ever heard of any of his songs. And uh, and he had success on television as a younger presenter of ideas, uh, but he also was a pompous fake. And and so his idea of presenting Elvis for his show was let's have him uh, wear white tie and tails. Yeah. Let's and then let's bring out a basset hound. You know what they look like dressed mm-hmm. in white tie and tails. And Elvis was a good sport about it. I mean, he did what he had to do because he was on television. So there was this this period of time. And I'm sorry that people like Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, all to mention people who died in their tw- at 27, mm-hmm. didn't really get. Uh, a good shot on television. Janice probably more than most. Yeah. They should sit down and talk, but a lot of these people were just, you know, they, they were just approached and, and were superficial, but again, they were reaching millions of people. So they had to do it. Yeah. And uh, you know, you talked about the set design, the doors set design that you're speaking of was, was famous on the Ed Sullivan show. And they even actually released a pretty cool pair of shoes that I bought that has the door design on it. And it was a little, I'm not even sure I remember what, what that was. I remember they had a distinctive logo, but I don't remember. And I also made that up in the sense that I thought I saw it, but I'm not sure it was the Ed Sullivan show or anything yeah. else. But if you, if you, if I'm correct, hooray for me. Yeah, it was the Ed Sullivan show and one of the cool bits. So in some of the interesting performances I had, so the Ed Sullivan show was the doors background, but then there was a co- really cool background in 68 on the Smothers brothers comedy hour. They went on and it looked Ooh. like these these big different metal sculptures and you really, really didn't see it. 
but as they, they would shift as the performance went on in the first song and eventually they made they spelled out the logo of the doors like a weird oh, nice. sort of I, I don't I don't know that I will look for it but what's interesting is that you're talking about uh, a 10-year difference in terms oh, yeah. of when the whole design of the Ed Sullivan show which mm-hmm. in our last discussion I explained that there were these there were disc jockeys, but very few visual doorkeepers. And he was the major one. He was on Sunday night and everybody sat down to watch the Ed Sullivan show. So to be on the Ed Sullivan show was about as good as it could get. Yeah. Uh, at, but it was all, all of his ideas and designs, and everything were formed in the mid fifties. Yeah. But the Smothers brothers were late, were middle to late sixties mm-hmm. and they considered themselves to be hip and cool and, and so they would they would have done something like that. It sounds very clever. It sounds like they had reached a certain point, which is again late sixties, uh, where that sort of thing was what their audience was expecting. Yeah, and before that, I think one of the I don't know if you're I imagine you're familiar with Murray the K, uh, the famous Absolutely. the fifth Beatle. Uh, yeah. he, or, he or as his fellow disc jockeys used to call him in New York, moral decay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think he had them on a show. Of course, most of the stuff back then besides Sullivan, I think didn't do it, but was lip syncing. And he had them, he had a lot of good New York shots of them just sort of wandering around New York, lip syncing to people are strange. Murray uh, was one of the old style style as well. He just lucked out with the Beatles. He lucked out. Otherwise he would have been like a lot of these other famous people from the past, but he was able to exploit that even, even later on. Uh, when the Beatles were breaking up, he was still the fifth Beatle. People have an impression. Yeah. And going back, you know, you talked about the loudness at the, uh, the Hunter college show. It's even mm-hmm. noted here by one of the by members, people who tended that people were leaving the show. It was so loud mm-hmm. that they yeah. got up and left in the middle of the por- yeah, performance. But it, I mean, it really was a kind of loud that, that nobody hears anymore. I mean, it's the sound is so amazingly balanced that it's almost not real, but yeah. the, the old sound, it was just about, could you, could you make could you make these these the vocalists heard above the the stringed instrument above the the amped instruments because for a guitar player standing on stage in front of a stack of martial amps they had the control they could turn it up or down and all of the miking of the amps and the balancing out and and speakers everything were that we're used to in modern technology just didn't exist they were just lucky to find a system big enough and i'm going to touch on one more thing interesting thing that i think needs to be said about the uh, or two more interesting things about that hunter college show was mm-hmm. that one of the uh, apparently an audience member throws some crumpled up paper at him and he and he gets it during the show which is a very obscure detail i'm not sure many people care about <laughs> it's okay. one, we we agree we were going to touch on all of the little minor moments here so that's fine i'm I'm happy to hear that i I don't know anything about the hunter show except i came back with glenn mccain we did the jefferson airplane and it couldn't have been any different oh yeah yeah and one other person that opened for it besides tiny tim was the nitty-gritty dirt band which nowadays i'm from the south i'm familiar with as a more bluegrass type band who does you know uh, fishing in the dark i think it's their big hit now whoever they are now i mean i don't i don't i remember they were they were a crossover band. They actually were accepted by the rock audience. Yeah. And, and the doors are notorious for that. They got to pick, and I think we talked about it. They got to pick their opening acts. I know they played that. Which is unusual. And they yeah. were smart. They were smart guys. I mean, they were not, they were, they, they were not just dumb musicians. They, they were college educated, smart people and good for, good for them. If, if the nitty gritty opened for them, because that's a mix that in just a very short period of time, the only person who would dare make such a mix was Bill Graham. Yeah, because Bill Graham had Ravi Shankar. I used to not appreciate as much. I remember getting the 
back in the day finding bootlegs, finding the bootleg of the Monterey Pop Festival and seeing like he only had three songs listed or something like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, he must have played a short set. No, no, he didn't play a short set. It's just three no, really, songs, really long his songs. His songs were 25 minutes long. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, that, uh, that even to this day, when there's something, we got to do a, a light show in the in modern times with a, with a, a tabla player yeah. and his other instruments. And it was heaven. It was just heaven, you know. Uh, I bet. I mean, that seems like the perfect, um, you know, the perfect mix of, of just light show and the perfect performance for a light show, you know? Yes, exactly. That's what actually... Uh, made help me make the switch in my mind. I was seeing it, but no, there wasn't anything like it. And and again, because I hadn't been to a ballroom yet, I'd only seen photographs, which was not a good way to transmit. Yeah, but it was all that was around. You just couldn't take a picture of it that was really satisfying, and you couldn't take film of it because there wasn't enough light. You had to experience it. But in 1966, Timothy Leary did mm-hmm. a series of lectures at what was called the Village Theater, eventually to become the Fillmore East. And he sat on the stage, uh, and they dropped the movie screen behind him, and he had a tabla player. I think it was uh, Alaraka and possibly somebody else. And and they would play, and he would babble. And I went to see one of the shows. But on the screen, filling the whole 20-by-30-foot movie screen was this light show, which was nothing but hand-painted slides, 10 people in the balcony and they're waving their hands in front of the projectors and changing slides. Yeah. It was unbelievable, unbelievably good. Oh, really? Uh, and, and it was, it, and the person that organized it, uh, Ruby Stern was an artist and he was very nice and he mentored me. And that was the, my, my first hint of what could be done. And ironically, uh, you know, two years later, at almost to the date, we're back at the Fillmore doing exactly the same thing, but much better. <laughs> yeah. And the music is everything. It's everything. So it was a. Uh, but there are certain there are certain music that that I'll just go for if if there's a any heavy drumming in a show, I'm there. I'm there. Heavy drumming is the best, and I don't mean dumb drum solos where you know the drummer goes up in the air. I mean, yeah, like Cream, Ginger Baker of Cream, where they they are honoring this instrument. One thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, Mm -hmm. this was maybe before show that Jim Morrison did a photo shoot with Time Magazine. There's one with him on like a red, like with a red backdrop. But the I have no, I have no idea, and I'm just going to tell you and your listeners, the Joshua Light Show at that point did not look like that. If you look at the picture I sent you with a yeah. little circle in the middle of it, that's we could fill the whole screen, but we were we never looked like that. And I mm-hmm. nobody's ever asked me, but I have no idea what that picture was. I mean, I know yeah. it was paste up, but you know, so, yeah. Uh, so you don't know it, if those it, it did nothing but serve me in the sense that people thought that the light show looked like, but it didn't. You yeah, here, folks. I've never told anybody that because nobody ever asked. Yeah, because the these shots, because back then, especially. I just sent the shots to you and I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, the ones from time magazine. Cause it, it was very, there's like a purple swirl and then there's one just like with a red swirl. Uh, I know that's very descriptive talking about light shows, but <laughs> well, you, you, I rest my case, you know, it, these were too, uh, to these, to the ground up. I, I mean, and back then, especially two weeks after you opened, you were still just the circle in the middle of the screen. Yes. Of, right? And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because bill who really was loved us and was not critical. He said, Josh, can you, can you make it, can you fill the screen? Which of course was like against the laws of physics because the screen yeah. was 20 feet, was 30 feet wide and we were 18 feet away. But, you know, we figured it out. We figured out a way to do it. And uh, it took a little while. He was patient, but 
that's it, it it that that picture is interesting to me because it it's what it really looked like it really yeah. looked like that but good you know we we can fill around the edges but the liquids he was used to seeing them you know ceiling to floor uh in the you know in, in the uh in the ballroom but we couldn't do that so we we but we figured it out and and I was very proud that we figured it out the shots that you said that weren't that you didn't do and we've right. And we've got, I've got, I've had more information on that looking into yes, it. Yes, please. I'll share. Um, I believe the photos were taken by the same photographer that we talked about. Yell Joel, really? Yeah, Yell Joel. But yeah. he took them at the Second Avenue Theater? Yes. Uh, the Second Avenue Theater uh, was a, a theater, an old theater on the corner of probably 12th Street. Uh, yeah, East 12th Street. It's still there because a long time ago it was turned into a multiplex movie theater. Really? So you can pretty much, you can go watch a movie where Jim Morrison did that, that iconic shoot. Not only that, but it was one of the early multiplexes. So what happened there is that the, the, the actual theater became one movie theater where the seats are. And then the stage house, which is, which would be there became another movie theater. And then the mezzanine, they made another, all different sizes. And I think maybe in the basement, that was uh, one of the first and, but it's still there. I, I'm, but unless you have more information, I'm sure they just used it as a place to shoot, like a studio. And maybe they did it at exactly the same time because he was available. Yeah. And I mean, the shots, I mean, as you said, they, they look like just random steals of, of it's don't look like a legitimate. A, a psychedelic slide. It, it, yeah. it doesn't yeah, look yeah. like a, like a psychedelic slide. And, um, and, and, but it, it does, if you look at it close up, we would, we would never, we couldn't. I'll try to make it uh, uh, clearer for you. The, 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 the basis of, um, of that, of, of anything involving slide, slides and, and early psychedelic stuff, we were working with what technology was available to us. And yeah. slide projectors, uh, good slide projectors were available. So everybody started before we knew about liquids or pure color or even the idea of projecting from behind. Everybody was making slides mm-hmm. and the slide looked like a 35 millimeter slide. Okay? Oh, wow. Yeah. Except they were a bigger format in that a normal 35 millimeter slide is not square. This one is square. And we would we would paint on them and everybody had different different techniques. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see it. And uh, that's it. That's that's what they were. And you just painted and painted. And that's what it looks like. It looks like somebody took paint on a slide and they it's two sheets of glass and they put it down and they close it and then they opened it to make yeah. this kind of look. But it, what and unless again, unless you have more information, the photograph looks like it was stylized. He's he's yeah. it's, he's using the, the wrong microphone stand. He's absolutely perfectly quaffed. And I think it yeah. was it was it was stylized in the in the way they've always done it. I'll tell you what else I think gives it away is there's three different shots of him in front of this background and none of the liquid changes. The liquid pattern doesn't change at all between three shots. Exactly. But remember, they're photographs and Yeah. You know, but they they didn't it it it, it's, it was a very common mistake. And I have to say, in terms of promoting the doors. Yeah. It was better than most things because he didn't look like that in performance. He's posing for that picture, yeah. but so what? You know, it's a good picture of him, and he and he he died at a young age, so at least it's there. Yeah. And whether he was stripped in over that picture by a by the people that did that very well, 
or they're projecting on him, which is is highly unlikely because he's well lit too. Yeah, I'll tell you by, by strokes. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's it, there's a lot of it's a big negative. Yeah, I'll tell you something else that um, that really brought the whole Joshua Light show to into more of a. I guess it made me oh, see that it made me. See, yeah, <laughs> that's a good good way to put it. That made me um, recognize the significant difference between that and the West Coast shows. Not anything against the West Coast shows, but here was one of the door shots from one of the West Coast shows. Here is a a, a slide that they used to represent the doors. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and I'll tell you why it looks like that. And by yeah. the way, I have a good picture that I found of of the doors playing Fillmore or Avalon. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's a real picture of, of them from the side, but it tells a story. I, I'm, if you haven't seen it, I'll be happy to send it to you. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. but the slide looks very, um, it, I mean, it looks more handmade, like the slides at the, the Joshua light show, like you use the actual Joe Brodsky young line, uh, well, yeah. shots. So and, here's what that was. Um, the, yeah. uh, the light shows, uh, were trying to do those titles, um, the, uh, the headlights, which was one of the light shows that went before us and that I, we learned a lot from half of it, uh, Glenn McKay, um, they, th- what they would do is Jerry was very good at hand scratching titles. And if you look at Monterey Pop and look, every once in a while, you'll see a band's title and it's, it's this scratchy yeah. squiggly thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking at. They, oh. they hadn't, whoever did that hadn't figured out to take the, the doors logo and make it into a high contrast slide yeah so it's handmade which is cool yeah it's cool but the i mean it just the joshua light show something it's it, i mean it's there was one i think there's one image of even Jimi hendrix that i was looking at from the 68 performance and it was a, there's a big huge eye behind him and i don't know if it was an eye slide or if it the liquid happened to make the the way the liquid blended into it you almost can't tell and no, it, that was uh my my girlfriend at the time an, an actress mm-hmm. named Susie kurtz and i took her down to the oh. studio and i Pointed the 16, I put a little tiny spot on her eye. She had very pretty eyes. And I took, you know, four minutes of her uh, opening and closing her eye, which we then took into, made into a film loop. And you couldn't make film loops very big. So, which is why yeah, yeah. It's, it's sitting in the center of the screen, but it was one of our quality loops. Uh, oh, wow. The eyeball. And she's very, she's always been proud of it. And she's a well-known actress. And she wrote a, an autobiography a few years ago. And, mm-hmm. She's very proud of the fact that she's, that's her eye behind Jimi Hendrix. It's, it, it's her brush with rock. Oh, Hendrix. that is, that is pretty awesome. We were talking about Albert King. You know, you said that you love to mm-hmm. listen to Albert King. One of the, one of my favorite performances ever recorded that the Doors did was with Albert King at the Toronto Rock Festival in 69. That was a big rock festival. I'm sure you know mm-hmm. about it, but they wanted Albert King specifically to come up and play because Jim was a huge blues person. You know, he was a huge yeah. fan of the blues. He played a lot of the blues. Yeah. And he cut his teeth with the blues and, and they sort of reverted back to that with LA woman later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that leads us to the doors performance. They perform two shows, March 22nd and 23rd, two weeks after the venue opens, New York was a real happening town at the time. And we've, yeah. we've mentioned Hendrix and the who that who show, they did a 33 minute encore of my generation. And I really want to know how a lot. <laughs> You're talking about after yeah. they, they're after they performed Tommy. the entire rock yeah. opera Tommy. Yes. They, they came, came up to the whole nother set. And sang all their hits. I mean, oh, I don't man. know how the hell they did it, except it was only one show a night that week. Yeah. And so, we're, you know, talk about the doors, the doors in New York, they come mm-hmm. and it was a, it was really a good thing for them. They were in the studio sort of in a rut. They had two really good albums mm-hmm. and they, and Jim said the first time sort of not coming up with material. So they come out and they start touring 
hit New York, mm-hmm. hit the the Fillmore East, you know, two two shows. And one of the one of the things that uh, I was going to ask you about one one a couple of days before the Scene Club, I'm sure you're familiar with the Scene Club oh, in yeah. New York. Saint Paul's the Scene. Yes, yes. Did you ever happen to catch any of the shows there? Because uh, sure. it was a, it was a seedy bar in the Times Square area, but uh, it was it was one of the early places like Max's Kansas City where people would go CBGBs later on just to. to to be with musicians, to hear music. It was a much more raw experience and there was lots of alcohol. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I went there, but you know, I, you, you can only have so much music. And when all these yeah. bands are coming out and playing for you, the, the desire to go see them now improvising with each other was not so strong in my mind. Then later on, I appreciated it. I guess Jimi Hendrix used to play at the scene club and he would bring his own recorder. He wanted to see, he jammed a lot, improv at the scene. And there was you know, a he was a, a very serious yeah. musician, but again, he was given that kind of same treatment as Jim Morrison was, you know, where where he became a superstar, and and you can't control your narrative at that point. No, but he did have a a run in with Morrison at the same club. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I don't know that. Uh, well, he, he Jim Morrison decided to join uh, Jimi Hendrix on stage while Jimmy's jamming, and what could have been something amazing devolves into some of the the most annoying, I guess, music, if you want to call it that, with uh, Jim Morrison just yelling the expletives re- repeatedly. Uh, it, it's not good, and it is on tape. You know, I, I don't know that at all. I will say that it was no secret that Jim Morrison, even by the time he they played the Fillmore, was a serious alcoholic. So yeah. it, it, along with everything else, he's now in a club where the, where, you know, he can have all he wants to drink. And I, I would not be surprised at all if he was not completely drunk. He, he was. And if you want me to, I can actually have the audio set up. I don't know if you want to hear no, it. You can send it to me sometime. I'd love to hear it. Yes. Yeah. I've never heard of that, nor have I even heard the story, but um, it, it would be, it would be fun. There, there is, there is a group of people who collect that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, the most famous one is the Trogs tape. Have you ever heard of the Trogs tape? I, I'm, I'm familiar with the Trogs. I don't know if I know the Trogs tape. Okay, well, it's a very simple story. It's the Trogs had a hit, you know, yeah, Wild, wild Thing or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And they now go back into the studio to make their next big hit. And they do not have the chops. And they're one of them is drunk. And, they, and it's a recording of a half-hour session in which they're trying to come up with the next Wild Thing. And, of course, they don't. <laughs> yeah, remember the drugs, but uh, it, it's it's always been a cherished thing in uh, you know in the collector's universe. Even I have a copy of it. Oh wow! His yeah. uh, his but he after having that terrible show, I guess he had to get it out of system. He had some great shows at the Fillmore East. My perspective on all of this is a, is I was standing behind the groups mm-hmm. yeah. with a large vinyl sheet, and yeah. that was my work. That's what I did. I didn't live down there. I I didn't hang down there. So whatever I tell you, if I, if I, I'll do my best to tell you what I heard or what I know, but I was not in the scene. Yeah. Not the way people imagine. Yes, sir. Yeah. And yeah, moving on to the shows themselves. So Mm -hmm. backstage, and I I don't remember where I found this in some, some obscure article with Bill Graham talking. Uh, He was talking about how sometimes he'd accommodate guests backstage and uh, for big brother, for Janis Joplin, big brothers, he brought them pizza. And yeah, yeah, which is what you think of it by today's standards. Wow, he brought them pizza. Yeah, but you know, but the truth was, the bands were were not treated uh, particularly well. They, you know, when they travel around the country, the the whole idea of the rider, which is sort of famous, you know, no brown M and M's, and 
beer only yes. in brown long yeah. neck bottles, you know, just all that crap that you that's sort of famous came later. They, they weren't doing that now. And Bill really loved these people. And remember, he was also one of theirs. He was from the Bay Area, which is where his success was. So here he was, a mensch from the Bay Area uh, who had had a big, wonderful theater in New York. So it was much easier for him to do things like that. And, and we always appreciated when he did that. Yeah. And he, but the thing, the strangest part of, of it was he said that he, that Jim per, per, particularly asked for chicken and mustard. He said he mm-hmm. loved chicken and mustard. And he said, hey, uh, as a pizza, no, just chicken and mustard. He said he oh, wanted fried and chicken and mustard. Just, mm-hmm. just if and Bill Graham got it for him, I just thought, yeah. that, I just thought that was, well, so, you know, I mean, only a few years later, a lot of the promoters who were, you know, had to buy these big packages. They, a lot of what they did to put on a show was about the catering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the doors, I mean, I'm the thing I think that's funny is they, I don't know. You talked about, I think two weeks afterwards, the sound wasn't up to par, I guess, of what it would be later. You could, there really wasn't a way for you to hear the sound as well. Oh no, no, we could hear it because we, in fact, we, it was, it was strange because we could hear the, the bass and the, the drums and everything. And we could hear the, the vocals, but we really needed to have our own speaker behind the screen so we could hear the, the quiet parts. We could hear the introductions. You, you could hear it, but you couldn't hear it clear enough. And uh, so we ha- always had a speaker with our own volume control on it. That we, And that was something we had learned because we'd already done half a dozen shows in other theaters where it wasn't provided. Yeah. And I'm going to get sort of in the minutia here. So whatever you don't because know. I was, I was expecting this to be all minutia, so you're, but you're asking really good, big questions. <laughs> Go for the minutia. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I was, so looking through the set list, the doors mm-hmm. opened with uh, one of their more bigger, tr- longer tracks. When the music's over was, was one mm-hmm. that is definitely mm-hmm. a, a big sort of, there's a lot of downtime in it. And, and then they go on from that sort of have break on through the sort of more upbeat. They do this little mm-hmm. medley of Alabama song, backdoor man, five to one. And they, you know, of course they're going to hit light my fire before they leave. Mm-hmm. But then they end with the end, which is also another longer song that is oh, yeah. and very depressing, yeah. but, but it, it was fine. I mean, they were, they were electric. They also had a movie that they had made that they wanted us to show. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> And I don't remember I, whether Bill killed the idea or what, but because it was a very depressing movie it, in which he, I, I can't remember. But, you know, they were film students. He was a film student at the same time I was in L.A. So they had films as, you know, as, as a thing that they wanted to do. And I just remember this film was very grim. Yeah, it was the Unknown Soldier music video. and. Yes. And in it, they tie Jim up under a pier and shoot him. And there you and, go, there you go. That's I. I remembered that. that. Thank you. Now I know. I'm making a note of it. And, and it's so strange. Like they play that, and and it's funny reading the reviews now, because just some of them are here. I'm gonna. I actually have some reviews here. These are courtesy of the Mild Equator website. They have mm-hmm. a yeah. lot of great information out there. The the guy who did the review seemed very over the top. He said that after they play the unknown soldier and Jim getting shot, that there are people shook in the audience on the verge of tears. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. You know how people are though. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, again, this was part of the problem. I, I, I most, we always had good reviews. It like yeah. to it pleased everybody, but I do remember those odd, uh, the odd review where the, the elderly theater critic would be dispatched downtown. The music critic. Would be oh yeah. Yeah. Downtown. And, 
And they were completely mystified by, by the audience and by the sound and the screeching and the, the, the gloppy light show, you know, and wrote about it in kind of highfalutin ways, which we enjoyed because it wasn't, it was not generally, it was appreciated. And more important is people came and the, and the theater became very well known. Yeah. One of the reviews right here, and then uh, it was called, I think in the Bucks County Courier, Mm-hmm. was uh, here it read Morrison stood at the microphone left foot firmly planted at its base both hands holding it with his lips like a seven-year-old gnawing a baby Ruth right the film which is which yeah. is a physically true but it's a terrible description <laughs> it really, I mean, yeah. my god you know I mean Elvis did that for Christ's sake it's uh, the thing though is is the one that I remember was always about his vinyl pants yep that was you definitely what I'm talking about he, they were he had leather pants everybody had leather pants if they were making money. They were black leather, but they became the vinyl pants. Yeah, I even heard that uh, Elvis's '68 comeback tour. He modeled that after Morrison. I heard that from a. I hope so. That Elvis aficionado. That would be good. Um, but it's, it even talks about you know the crowd loomed you know breathlessly through the mm-hmm. wall of blue and red yeah. lights. But you know, sure. it, it's it's all. I mean, has much nothing's changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is basically what this is about. Is is the same hyperbole is there. Pretty the much. difference now is you can see what it looks like. You can see it. And and since the iPhone, you can see it even more. I could do a show with the light show. And by the time I get home, someone has posted a serious video you know, about the light show. Uh, so I get to see the work. It's wonderful. like an echo. Yeah. And there are actually uh, a lot of shots of Jim backstage. Did you ever meet Jim backstage or get to have any conversation with him or any of the other band members? No, I not really. Uh, they, they and it was not because they had a security blanket or anything like that. It, the truth was, we we got to 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 do something wonderful and big with the music. And, I mean, everybody taps their feet. We got to tap these giant projectors and do all this stuff. So interacting with with uh, with Jim and the others was not something we wanted later on the grateful dead and the allman brothers began to merge more with the light show people because they they had such great music and the light show was some of the people and it were just totally wrapped up in that world but initially we just we were just happy to get through the show right. so no we didn't yeah. interact with them but there was no rudeness or anything i do remember at the time that Jim Jim already had a reputation among people that were more connected to the business as as not being liked by his band bandmates. I can remember that bit of information that because he was getting all the focus, and clearly he was the talent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who chose his music, but it was incredible. They, you know, he was a he was a poet. He was smart. Uh, and as I said, that he was, I think, UCLA Film School or something. He he mm-hmm. was, you know, he, he was destined to many things. Yeah. I'm going to read this little bit. This was from DoorsHistory.com. This was posted in 2006. I, there's no, I couldn't find any corroborating evidence on okay. some of this. So well, I'm just gonna, I'll, do my, I'll do my best. I'm going to read it as is. And some of the stuff you probably wouldn't have seen, and I don't even know if you'd know, but I just find some of it interesting. So the Doors do four performances, two days. They sell out the the 2,500 seat auditorium at $5 a show every single night. And they, mm-hmm. re- they actually did release in their newsletter that I read that they were the first group to do so, which you've only been open two weeks. So I'm not, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I have no reason not to believe that, you know, it was easy. It was, if you wanted to go see the doors, you went to the theater, you bought a ticket, you went in. And so yeah. people, you know, didn't have, didn't worry about any of the reservation things or travel or driving or anything. Cause it was in New York. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember seeing the, I think I remember you even talking about it, how the, how they wound around the side of the building and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and there was no, uh, there was no liquor, you know, uh, mm-hmm. people came at least in, in the, in the first year, people came to hear that band and they knew about the band because they had heard about it from their friends or heard about, or heard the music on the radio. And chances are that's what inspired them to want to come and see them. It wasn't because it, it was no more complicated than Elvis's story because yeah. when Elvis was a big star 15, 20 years before that, you just saw a picture of him there, here and there, or the odd, embarrassing television uh, appearance. You really never saw him. And it was not unlike that. There were already magazines that wrote extended pieces, but to sell out, you know, that many tickets for four, not for four performances, that's, that was a, that was very encouraging. Because after, shortly after that, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I, I have a story. Business, yeah, business it, dropped off because yeah. people were frightened to go out. And Bill Graham uh, put on the shows and did very smart things. I think he did a show with The Who that where he just he what he did was he start the show with the opening act uh yeah the, the opening act and the, and then the middle or middle act and then the who would play a really long set and then he without changing audiences you could stay in the theater and then the middle act would come out and then yeah. the opening act would come out and it satisfied the audience yeah and here uh it was talked about that the, this was and this is still i think from everything i've read considered one of the greatest performances the band ever did these set mm. of four shows. And yes, I, I would I would believe that because yeah. it was a theater. They were treated well. They were paid properly. There was, you know, there was no reason why the sound was good. It was young people running it. It was there wasn't any of the kind of things that they would be experiencing on tour. And they're not all bad things. It's just that here there was youth and focus. And remember, that was a time of revolution. So to be among your own was probably good for them. And they weren't English. They didn't have some clever English guy, you know, bossing them around, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the Who did. They they were just the band. (laughs) In the early show on Friday, Jim Morrison's extremely stoned. Not mm-hmm. not out of the ordinary. Drunk, yeah. He fa- Jim falls into the lighting pit. Apparently, during that, there there's no lighting pit. But keep yeah. going. So there, there was no lighting pit whatsoever. There was a balcony way somewhere. So else. he would have had to fall off the stage if that was true. Which which was only like four feet or something. The stage yeah. wasn't that hot. Later, the, I was there. <laughs> yes, yes, you. <laughs> later, the same performance. Jim introduces the unknown soldier video, pretending to be a college professor and asking the class to pay close, close attention to the movie because afterwards there'd be an exam. Mm-hmm. Um, after they play, they followed it with their full length rendition of the celebration of lizard, which is just Jim doing some poetry along with some music. There'd be mm-hmm. some very, yep. so yep. during poetry, how do you, how do you lot of poetry? Uh, if, if Jim's just no music behind him, he's doing, you mean, what did we do? Yeah. What do you do on uh, with Okay. The, now with that's Joshua a very Wilson. good question because we were, uh, uh, I'm going to say it after all, we were smart. We, we knew what to do and we knew what not to do. And the, one of the reasons for that is because the control, the final control of what actually went on the screen was me because I had my hands on the dimmers. So mm-hmm. my colleagues would all create things, but unless I turned them on, you didn't see it. And, uh, and we, we would never have the screen without anything on it, but we knew when to slow down and be calm. Now, if he's on the stage and he's reading poetry and performing, there could be a moving background behind him that's yeah. that's not competing with him and it's not trying to find a tempo. 
we, uh, after the Fillmore had been open for a while, they started having Jazz Tuesdays, and we would do Jazz Tuesdays, which was always different and more mellow. Ravi Shankar, you know, we could do that. Uh, so that's what what I would have made some choice to put something on the screen that had a little movement to it, and then we did the thing that was the most important. We listened. We listened to what was going on. We paid attention. And 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 it was like clapping your hands or tapping your feet. We could we could do it just on a big scale, and always keep it in proportion. I never had anybody complain about the light show being uh, distracting or anything, except when Ike and Tina Turner were there. Uh, but it wasn't Ike and Tina Turner. It was their lousy lighting people with yeah. their stupid strobes and things complaining <laughs> about that crap on the screen. But we all laughed, you know, and kept doing it. What are they going to do, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. But no, but we we made we made good choices. I'm proud of that. Yeah, and and I think that's something that I think you've even said about yourself is sometimes people, the light show, the liquid light show tries to up. Not I don't know if they try to upstage it, but they try to they keep the 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 show going even though there's not it's not really right. indicative. But or but, be. but but that was a, a a choice that that I made based on timing and talent and taste, uh, and was shared by my colleagues. We we just knew. We knew we were doing a good show. We knew we could be more powerful. The the trick then is don't. And that's one of your problems with these large arena spectacle shows is, is stage lights are wonderful. You program every last one of them. They do this. They go here. They go there. You know, yeah. <laughs> the video screens show that or they show that. But it, it, it never calms down. It never slows down. So it just has to keep building. So then you get to explosions and things. We didn't have to do that. We were able to follow a very straight line. Yeah. And because we could talk to each other, I very often speak to the lighting designer, and we had several, uh, saying, uh, do you, who wants to take the end? Meaning, basically, at the end of the song, uh, we'll we'll black out and put up the name, and you can do the bump. You know, your, your lights can get brighter at the end. And then for this song, you you don't, just don't do anything. And I mean, just keep lighting, don't you? but let us bump, and we'll hit a strobe then. And we developed a language and it was a language of, you know, we, we were, we were young and sort of hostile, but we were collegial when it came to actually doing the work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, one of these shows, I think the light show, they said that they opened with the, when the music's over, nobody could mm-hmm. seem see Jim. He wasn't anywhere around. He comes jumping, leaping over the drum kit to hit mm-hmm. his cue just in time to scream, uh, one of the infamous screams, I'm sure that that yeah. you you uh, heard and, and, that and you also I, I hope on on mild uh, equator and other places people are looking a little more deeply into what his, what informed him because he was doing beatnik poetry. I mean, he was informed yeah. by uh, by Ginsburg, you know, and people like that. So he was trying to find uh, th- that kind of intense uh, thing that that was being done at that time. And he was trying to be a, a poet and, and a philosopher, whether he was successful at it, I don't know, but, but yes, he was, he was doing big things, which we didn't have anything to do with. Uh, Sometimes he certainly didn't jump over the drum kit, but you know, (laughs) we, we would have supported him. Uh, And later on, we, we did a show with Kusama, a Japanese artist who, came out and and did a show where, where naked people danced on the stage and she painted polka dots on them. But we knew who she was. We didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't play. We, we supported her. And I have photographs, you know, to prove it. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's 90 years old now, but they keep putting on Kusama shows and I keep getting the call. You know, what was it like? And I give them my photographs and say, we respected her. You know, sometimes things line up. I think the stars align, even though, I guess, unintentionally or whatever happens that, that causes it to happen. Right. Um, <laughs> in between the time that we last spoke, uh, mm-hmm. randomly, Linda McCartney's uh, Instagram page mm-hmm. posted a new picture that a really clear picture that I don't, I don't think we've ever seen in this high quality. And it was a picture of Jim Morrison, you know, in the doors performing on that show. And it actually confirmed an account and we'll get into it right here. Um, so I'm going to read this. This was from doorshistory.com. What we, we've talked a little bit about it. Um, the early show on Saturday, the audience is on the way to the Fillmore East and they had picked a considerable amount of daffodils. And throughout the show, they flung them onto the stage. Um, Jim picks some up and methodically places a few on each member's instruments in between songs, seemingly picks on John by placing many on his drums and under his nose and attempt to get him going. And so I thought they, they use that in the Oliver Stone movie, of course. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, Oh, you know, it's probably just a cool bit that they made up or something. Yeah. I can, I can give you a hint uh, as to what that was about. If you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Well, basically uh, Bill Graham was a showman. And so uh, it is not unreasonable at all to think that they might have handed out uh, daffodils to the audience. Uh, He was always doing things like that. What could they do? What harm could they do? And one person throws one, then everybody does. And Jim Morrison, being of a good theatrical mind, picks it up and starts to work with it. But those kind of things like tossing flowers or holding a flower was very much a high-end trope in that period. Flower child. There was always a picture of a pretty girl, and and she'd have a flower in her hand. So it was yeah. like a symbol. It was a symbol. So if you look right here, this is a, a beautiful shot that I think. Um, and you say this is a Linda McCartney photo. Linda McCartney photograph, and we'll, and I'll talk a little bit more about her. But if you see, can you see the little bitty orange flowers like Jim has placed? Yeah, I can. I don't. I, I'm seeing. Uh, I forget his name, but it's not Jim. It's the, yeah, Robbie Krieger of the. He's Robbie, the guitarist. Yeah, Krieger. yeah. I absolutely. That would be a lovely uh, moment and. Linda Eastman, uh, I'm sorry, Linda McCartney, mm-hmm. she was Linda Eastman when I yeah, yeah. was a, was a very, very well-known uh, uh, photographer and high-end sophisticated groupie, which simply means she really liked to sleep with bands, yeah. but not in a wanton way. She had very good taste and she was lovely. And she took the post, the picture on the first Fillmore poster. Really? Yeah, that's cool because um, they, her and Jim actually... So uh, this is an excerpt from, I believe, her book. I'm, I'm not going to put the whole thing out here. I definitely recommend going and reading her book, but this is just a little excerpt from her meeting of Jim. Uh, she said, when I was taking pictures of Jim in the doors, I never thought I was for photographing a rock idol. To me, he was an unknown singer with an interesting mind who shared my love of the visual arts. In return, I think he saw me as someone who could capture him as he really was rather than a showbiz person who would add to the glamour surrounding him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will I will not do anything to put the lie to her explanation of what she thinks Jim Morrison saw. <laughs> yeah. I know what I saw, and she was this this wonderful, attractive, not a great beauty, but attractive woman with a great figure who w- hung around and was sophisticated. And I think that was very attractive. I'm not sure Jim <laughs> saw that, but yeah. I, th- I think if she wanted to think that, I would never say it's not true. I'm just just remembering that she we all liked her. She was and she was very good looking and she took good pictures. 
Yeah, and to she said that when she first came to that he first came to her apartment, he looked through all her work and he told told her to take pictures of him because he could see that I re, that she really captured characters and subjects. Um, and this is her speaking. My approach was to take personal, casual shots. I never intruded. I never set up false situations. I was just there recording what happened. I became like a band member whose chosen instrument was the camera. The last picture I took of Jim were in ni- March of 1968 when the Doors played the Fillmore East Life magazine was planning a front cover story and wanted me to take color shots of him. I took him to the to the cloister, a monastery outside New York, which mm-hmm. was a place I like to hang out in. When yeah. I felt pressured by Manhattan, it was pouring rain, so we stayed in, and Jim sat in a window, and the light from the courtyard lit his face. The pictures were beautifully poignant. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed two weeks later, so Jim never made that yeah. front cover, Correct. which, yeah. you know, that's a definitely understandable. No, that, that would be very, very uh, Linda McCartney. She would take him to a beautiful uh, monastery, the Cloisters, uh, which is uh, just on, on the north end of Manhattan, and it's it's old and stone with rooms and lots mm-hmm. of archways. and And I have lots of good photographs and memories from that place. It was a, a very intelligent choice. She didn't take him to a bar. Yeah. She didn't take him to bed. She took him there to take his picture. And the light is good, which is very important. The light, you get you have good light there. So it's a very popular place to shoot. Yeah. And she, uh, I think there's a famous photo of her of laying on the bed, sort of kicked back. And Jim actually took that picture with one of her cameras just to, exactly. cause he wanted to capture exactly. her. It's, it's, it, I mean, I, that's, if he was going to, if he was going to do those sort of things, um, I, if I were him, I would have done, made the same choices, you know, because she was, she, she was smart. She knew the scene, she knew the music. So she wasn't yeah. just seducing musicians. She was actually, deeply invested and then you know when she married paul mccartney we were happy and th- that marriage was strong yes you know? yeah oh it and, was and, and, that, and he loved her yeah i believe the first time they spent any time apart was whenever he got arrested in japan um right. so i mean it uh, but but it's a it's a perfectly good source and by the way she had a uh from a previous marriage i don't know anything about it but she had a young daughter oh, you yeah. know a, a six or seven year old girl that we, mm-hmm. we, we she'd bring around sometimes so uh, I don't know what happened to her, but she'd be a great source yeah. for more information yeah. about the doors. Yeah. But here's the thing. And I just, mm-hmm. since you're tracing this stuff down, uh, if she had any kind of a relationship, personal relationship with him, which she obviously did, uh, she took a lot more pictures. So yeah. I think it would be interesting. Whoever is managing her archive or publishing her books probably has access to a lot of, of pictures not, not pornographic, just more intimate. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, because that's true of a lot of other s- photographers I've known of a similar quality who get deeply involved with their subjects. So I'm, I'll bet there's pictures of him by the morning light, you know, pictures yeah. of him in the shower. I wouldn't be surprised. And after a certain period of time, which is what we're talking, you and I are talking about, let it out there. Let it, yeah, you know, let people see it. It's it doesn't hurt his music. It doesn't hurt his legend. You know, it make it just makes him more human. Man, and her, because she's entitled. Yeah, that's that is a great um, a great bit of information. You know, because I, I've always been to the same thing. After a while, what does it matter? You know, after somebody's been dead for fifty, sixty years, I mean, what is it? I mean, just put everything out there. Right. Um, and it's important to remember, even though it, it's it you you understand and it's obvious, it, it, people forget that you took a picture and then you push the film forward and you took another picture and you push the film forward. So nobody mm-hmm. just took one because you didn't know what you were taking. Yeah. And then you didn't see it for as long as it took to go to the lab and come back, which could be anywhere from three hours uh, to three days. So uh, 
And there, so there were, there were a lot of, because I know this from my own experience, for every good picture that I have, that I've, uh, that, that including some I've sent you, there's, there's a, a half a dozen others that are not as good. I just picked the right one, but I see the negatives here. And I'm inclined now to go back and just have a look since I can scan them and yeah. and reverse them and, you know, invert them and, and see it. Maybe there's something in this picture that even though it's not, doesn't tell the story the way that my classic Jim Morrison picture does. Jim, scream, you know, yeah. maybe it's showing something else. Maybe it's showing daffodils flying through the air. So you following up on that makes me want to go back and, and just see. I don't remember anything extraordinary, but. A long time, time has passed. Yeah. And going back, so the second night, the second Saturday show, uh, it says Jim holds on to the rising curtain to the point of maximum safety height. And even a little more I'm before. Sorry, second, which second show are we talking about? The, at, the, at the Fillmore East. This, did y'all have? Yeah, a, there was no, no curtain at the Fillmore East, if that helps you at all. <laughs> yeah. So I can see. There was no, no stage curtain. Yeah. Because apparently this says that, uh, he, he apparently rode the curtain up, um, yeah, not not it just can't. It, it was no such thing. Yeah. So yeah, that that definitely debunks that. And and at the late show, the doors are in such a good mood. They tell Bill Graham they want to do another encore. Graham comes out on stage as, as the audience is filing out and asks them if they want some more, which they graciously accept. And the band ends up playing another entire set lasting over an hour. What a mm-hmm. magical weekend this must have yeah. been. Yeah. And then uh, just to just to give you a footnote. We were still uh, the, the Joshua Light Show was still accepting outside gigs because yeah. we needed the money, and so even though we had a permanent setup at the Fillmore, we we had a a, a job the next day in a yeah. hotel ballroom for some hairdressers I don't know convention. So we're loading out, and while we're loading out, Jim and Bill are sitting on the stage, yeah, having a long conversation. Each one has a microphone, and I was only half listening to it, but it was a. Serious conversation about, are you ready? What's better, East Coast or West Coast? That's what they were talking about. Yeah. But I was so wrapped up in just getting out. And then, and, you know, we would be back the following Friday. But it went on even further. And as far as I know, they all went to Rattlers afterwards. They did. They sure did, and, and reportedly. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you didn't make the the trek with them to Rattlers. No, no. I, 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 we had done good shows. We were tired. And we we had a gig the next day. So we had to load out it was it was not impossible but we couldn't do that and witness a moment of history unfortunately yeah. i wish i had or at least taken a picture of it so did you um at that time if if they do have an encore say hey you know they have an encore do you still perform oh, for yeah, them? We, yeah we we did not uh, stop doing something yeah. it might have been a, a a nice slide that said good night you know, or, yeah. or it's something pretty, but it stayed there. No, we, we, you waited till the building not, was empty. Yeah. We did not stop working from the moment the house opened until the moment the work lights came on. Then we stopped. Yeah. Because that was part of our discipline, we never, we never stopped. We weren't working hard, but we, we felt as long as the screen was down and the work lights on the stage was off, were off, we felt responsible. Which is very professional. And, and well, I wouldn't expect anything less of the Joshua Light Show, but, but reports say that this concert supposedly ended. At three twenty-five in the morning. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that it didn't. And I have a first of all, it's probably started late. Yeah. Second of all, I have a feeling that that includes their discussion. Mm-hmm. I did think of an interesting thing that you mentioned in passing, which is uh, uh, actually maybe I just thought of it. But if you would ask me, well, what would what would the Doors have done if they hadn't played Madison Square Garden? Yeah. Or that's what went through my mind, and the answer is. I would have liked to have seen them survive. 
because without Jim Morrison, there was really nothing. And I would like them to have done what The Who did, which was play for one week. Yeah. Tommy, and uh, only one show and no opening act. So they come out and they play as long as they want, and that's it, show's over. And yeah. that was the turning point in terms of The Who's career in, from, you know, and the theater in terms of The Who were going to perform Tommy, which was then new. And then mm-hmm. they had so much energy afterwards, they performed another hour or more of their hits, which were already preceded them. And then it was over and everybody left. And that was uh, what I would have liked to have seen happen with The Doors. I would be remiss if we didn't bring this up just in passing. Um, there were rumors, and I know we've talked about Fillmore having shows taped. There were rumors that a show was taped and had floated around for years, but nothing has ever really surfaced that I know of. But you have spoken on here that this was early on when the film were open. So these shows were, in your opinion, probably not taped, like almost certainly not taped. Well, I, I, yes. And what help, what can help with that is how exactly would you do that? What kind of a machine would you use? Now, there were some sophisticated recorders at that point, mono, yeah. for, used for film and things, but they were big. It was really hard to sneak a recorder in. Yeah. you know, and And I just don't know anybody who did it. But even the sound guys, eventually, within a – a year or so built a, a multi-track recording studio in the basement, hidden away under the stage. And they recorded everything. But at this time it was not operational. Correct. It was just, it was a question of how would you do it? If, yeah. if an artist came and wanted to record something, they'd have to bring a, I mean, the smallest tape recorder was still 30 pounds and yeah. know, it, was, it just wasn't happening technically, but you never know. There's always a possibility of a surprise. Yeah, because the I think the rumor was that it was a soundboard recording that Bill Graham would have made, but that wouldn't have been the case this early in 68. Right. Well, especially more. if you hear the audience, because that's 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 the clue, is if you're not hearing the audience reaction, then it's coming through the sound through a soundboard, because they, yeah. they, they don't mic the audience for PA. So, yeah. I, 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 can't, I wish I could help you more, and I want you to know there, there were people that were... T- middle-aged men who will take me out to lunch and talk about the day and then ask me if I know where any Grateful Dead tapes are. And we're not talking about the existence of a tape now. Now they're trying to go upstream and find as close to the master as they can. God bless them. That's, that's fine. No, I'm yeah. And to, to my knowledge, you know, you talked about it. Apparently the rumor was that another, that although either the tape was in storage and a fire damaged it, if it did exist, but from, from just taking what you said, I would venture to say that it does not exist. A, t- a soundboard recording of any of the March shows uh, from that time it period would, do not exist. It would exist. have been too early for that. I mean, the Grateful Dead, they didn't ad- adopt that whole policy until much later. Yeah. When they were playing arenas and it became a, a part of their, their whole mythology. But no, not not that early on. In, in, not, not before the 70s. I, I'd be very surprised. I'm no expert, but I would be surprised. The Doors, they did piss off Bill Graham, and I want to make sure you know this. After the Fillmore opener in the same period of time, you may or may not know that the beautiful uh, Penn Station in New York on 34th mm-hmm. Street, this beautiful, glorious, other century building was ripped down uh, and, and, and to such indignation that they actually created a whole set of laws to prevent that in the future. And what replaced it was the new Madison Square Garden, which was just the most awful place. Uh, and yeah. they, it was a, a union hassle. It was everything. And their idea of putting on a, a rock show for the kids was to have a stage in the middle of the arena that yeah. spun slowly using their sound system, which was designed for hockey games. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think the staple singers played with the doors at that the Madison Square Garden show that we've mentioned. And that was even an issue. I know a really big issue with the vocals. Even if you listen to the bootleg that's going around, uh, there's a especially when you bring a big band in, the, the sound was crap, really, like you said. Well, they, made, they made you use um, their sound. The Madison Square Garden was never designed. And it's it was a, it was new when the doors played mm-hmm. here, but it was never designed for rock music it was designed for circuses and rodeos and sports so they had a big uh you know metal speakers in the ceiling pointing out towards the the edges and and if you're doing a show in the round you have to do 360 degree sound and that's yeah. that's it doesn't it, it you could do it but well mixing it and everything else and now of course it's it's done all the time and, and you know uh, but then they had, they, and they didn't care. That's the important thing. That was from my point of view, which came from Bill Graham's point of view. They didn't care. They were just happy to do an hour and get paid seventy five thousand dollars. And that haunted Bill always. It always came up in this conversation. And I remember Bill Graham just being so upset because the Doors wouldn't come back. They chose instead to do one bad show at Madison Square Garden for seventy five thousand dollars. Yeah. And that became one of Bill's things, one of his talking points. And it was not because he, not why he closed the film war, but when he was reminiscing about all of the offenses that, and the Rolling Stones asking him, Mr. Graham, have you ever done anything big? Were two of his, his most well-known offense, you know, where he was offended the most. Yeah. And, I, and, and, I, and, and, the, and, and, but the doors were the first to go to the garden, at least the first that we were aware of. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to shit show and take mm-hmm. the money. Yeah, and, and it wasn't the it wasn't the band that stuck that stuck it in Bill's face. It was the managers. Yeah, which Bill Siddons was their manager. I think he was younger at the time. Right. Yeah, and, and I know Bill. You know, and, and he wasn't an evil guy, but he needed he wanted to make the money. He also knew they were, you know, doomed. Yeah, <laughs> so. no, and, and I think, and I'm not trying to stick up for the band at all. And and I mean, it's definitely not the right choice. But at this time, the Doors were doing the Soft Parade album. They were trying to have a a, a, big, a big band. They had played the LA Forum, and they had did it with an orchestra. They wanted to bring that to the East Coast. That was that, that became popular, yes. So they wanted, and well, their album necessarily wasn't popular, I guess, with everybody. But they wanted to bring that to the East Coast. They said, "We want a big band to come and join us. We want Curtis Amy on stage playing saxophone." And mm-hmm. and maybe the, and I'm not saying that the Fillmore East couldn't have uh, accommodated that. Maybe it definitely could have. But I feel like they wanted to do something like that. I guess to have okay, the. Okay, I, I, you know, I wasn't involved in that. I, no, yeah. I think, um, I think I would have heard about this part, that part of it, that they went to Madison Square Garden and did a shitty show on a round stage. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. As definitely. opposed to not definitely. getting a big band at the Fillmore, that doesn't sound right. But uh, I, who am I to question legends? No, and and you no, and that's your actually is your part is something I never did hear. So I mean, it definitely makes a, a a lot of sense because, and I think Bill Graham, I mean, he preemptive, preemptively closed it. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, no, that was and 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 that was a, a whole other time. The yeah. music had changed. The managers wanted too much money. He couldn't get the kind of music he wanted. You know, he really didn't want to present Alice Cooper, even though Alice Cooper was quite good. He yeah. just didn't want to present that kind of act. Yeah, and 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 by then everybody was. I was long gone, and they were taking yeah. cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it it ran out of uh, out of energy. And Bill had the had the power to say it's closing. You know, it, it it was almost childish, but he could do it. Yeah, you know, it was incredible to give it up because it could have run forever. You know, Jimi Hendrix passes away in September of 1970. Janis Joplin passes away October 1970, and you leave the Fillmore. 
before that in April of 1970. And ultimately the Fillmore closes on June 27th of 1971. And six days later, Jim Morrison passes away in Paris uh, on July 3rd. 1971. Jim Morrison was was trying to find an edge, uh, and it wasn't he, he wasn't supported well. Yeah, you know, and and uh, because people just didn't know, and uh, and that's and, and he became you know something where the police would arrest him, you know, and stuff like that. And that's yeah. that's not that's not helpful. But you don't grow from that. And that's the end of the Fillmore shows. What do you want the Fillmore and the Joshua Lott show? What do you want it to be remembered for? Or what, do you, what is there, what if somebody has a lasting impression? What do you want them to remember about the Fillmore East? Oh, okay, That's a, I'm not sure I've ever answered that question. I would just like to, to it to be um, uh, known by any any means necessary, including what you're doing now. I'm giving you unlimited time because it's you're going to save it. You're a young guy, and it's going to be out there. And I'm I'm an authority, you know, uh, yeah. on a very small aspect of it, but I it, my name is on it, so I'm not. I'm not some old guy who just suddenly remembers things. This is all what I, I'm telling you what I experience, and it's as close to, to real as possible. And, and we were in an interesting position so, uh, of being a, above and yeah. looking down on everything. And so I just like to be remembered as part of that moment when music turned, when, when my generation's music turned from being something had, that was filtered to something that was the marching music for a whole generation. And when I listen to the old classic stuff, which I do, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It reaches me on levels that modern music just isn't going to. But I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's great. I like what we did there to be memorable. It it isn't the flawless gem beginning. It's not lightning striking. But at that moment, what we were great, and I'm very proud of it. A, a, a little Jewish boy and his group of people putting on an amazing light show. That colored the whole thing, and uh, it was an amazing, amazing experience that I don't know if you could capture. You know, the um, just all those perfect combination of ingredients could capture that again. Um, well, fortunately, I have some photographs. Yes, and, yeah, and 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 because I was treated well there, I'm on the poster and I'm on the marquee, and that that's that's more than enough. I, you know, I I don't need the recognition, but what you just said is completely true, and. And it was a, a very interesting experience that really informed the rest of my life. And I was young. I was lucky. Yeah. And you, you went to film school, too. That's another interesting combination. I, I, had, the, things, yeah. I had film literacy. Yeah. Uh, so so we could, after the, before the airplane came out, we could show the last few minutes of King Kong. Yeah. Where he's attacked by the airplanes and he falls off the Empire State Building and dies. And one of the, they cut to the street and a, policeman is turning to one of the people from the film and says says uh something like uh well thank goodness the the airplanes killed the beast and the person it wasn't beauty it wasn't airplanes that killed the beast it was beauty that killed the beast and then out would come the jefferson airplane perfect but you needed a little film you need to understand that is there so is there anything else that you want people to know about anywhere they can follow you? Uh, you talked about your website or anything that you yeah, want to. I mean, if, if they're deeply interested, uh, I found that everybody who has anything posts it. So go online, type in Joshua Light Show, type in Hendrix New Year's Eve, and you'll be surprised at how many little photographs and things show up that somebody took because you could take a picture there that you just didn't know before. There's whole there's groups of people that just collect weird photographs that were shot by fans 
and just go online or, or go to uh, Instagram or Facebook or a more sophisticated group if you want. But there's there's more visual information out there because nothing is lost anymore. You can see everything. Whether And sometimes you're seeing it in a really primitive form, but anything you see can be up to be better. Thank you again, uh, Your Eminence Joshua White. Uh, thank you, told me to call you that first episode. So I'll continue that trend. My pleasure. So thank you so much for your time, for your patience, uh, going 24 minutes over here. I, but I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to have you back sometime, hopefully further in the future, so I'm not bugging you every week. But thank you so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. You take care now. All right, you too. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Thank you again to Joshua White for the interview. A lot of his loops are still out there, and you can find them on YouTube. I would definitely recommend giving them a watch. You can find the podcast on Twitter at The Doors Pod and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage, as well as to Reed Berrigman of The Dirty Doors for additional research. I also want to thank DoorsHistory.com and the Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in one week for a special bonus interview with founding member of Strawberry Alarm Clock, George Bunnell. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Whoa!